All right, so we're going to begin in uh, Jonah. We're going to go through the whole book of Jonah. Are you excited? Did you bring a snack and a drink? We're going through a whole book here. Um, I mean, it's only four chapters long, but we're going through a whole book, and uh, when we come into a story like this, similar to many of the things we talked about with the Sermon on the Mount, is the real danger of this lullaby effect. Like, somebody just tell me. Real quick, what's the story about? What's the story of Jonah about? Somebody just spit it out. It's about a whale. He wouldn't go where he was supposed to go. God, God fixed that. Yeah, and, and that is our understanding of it. And you, that was probably, there, there are two stories, childhood stories, um, that if you grew up in church, you probably learned first. And one is probably Noah, and the second is probably Jonah, right? Because Noah's all about saving the animals, and Jonah's all about a fish that swallows a man because he wouldn't do what God wanted him to do. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that is not what this story is about. Uh, there, there is a fish in this story, but this, the fish is an incredibly minor character in the story. It is not what this story is about. So as we come into this, I want us to remember that we are in a study about the way. It is the reality that Jesus does not simply want us to acquiesce to the, the fact that he is God and that he lived and that he died and he rose again. He says, there is a way in which you follow me. And so we've been looking at different aspects of the way over these last few years, last few weeks, not years. I mean, I guess you could say years. Everything we do should be about this way. What does it look like to know God and to follow him and to also partner with him in the world around us where his great goal is the redemption of the entire world? So everything we do as a church is about this way. And when you become a Christian... It is not the way to heaven. It is the way of living life. It is the way we approach people. It is the way we approach God. It is the way we deal with ourselves and our own problems. This, there is a way, and we can either choose this way, or we can choose any other number of ways, and each one of us has a bend towards whatever way we want to live our lives. So we started the first week talking about the way of Jesus. Uh, then we talked about the way of worship. If we are going to follow Jesus, we will live lifestyles of worship. Not just that we come to worship every now and again, but worship will be a part of our everyday life. We talked about the way of self-denial, which is really a key to a whole lot in the life of following Jesus. Because just saying, I'm going to follow someone else's way, is an act of self-denial. And we read over and over and over again in Scripture, where he says there's something better, but you have to choose it. And... If you don't choose it and you choose your own way, that is a path of destruction. So self-denial is a part of life. It's also a secret to relationships. No one likes to have a friend who always makes it about them, right? Uh, If you have a friend that you go out to eat with and, you know, you you leave after an hour-long lunch or coffee or whatever, and you know a whole bunch of things about them because they've talked about themselves nonstop, but then you've not said a single thing about your own life, You know what it's like to be in a relationship with people that do not practice self-denial, that make it just about me, I'm focused on me. The next week we talked about another key in following Jesus, which is the way of repentance, which is very uncomfortable for us. But we discovered repentance is choosing a way, it is choosing through the path of self-denial, but it is also a very real change in the way we see and in the way we act within this world. Last week, Scott talked about the way of discipleship, and discipleship is really what the church is supposed to be about. Evangelism 
is a part of discipleship. And yet, in our contemporary culture, churches talk about evangelism, but evangelism without discipleship ruins the story. Because a person needs to know what's going on in this whole thing. In fact, as I've gotten older, and as I've done this for a while, I have become increasingly convicted of the fact that a person can actually come to faith in Christ unless they have been a part of some level of discipleship along the way. And you think, well, gosh, that seems awfully severe, Mark. Like they got to join a Sunday school to be a Christian? No. Absolutely there are people in this world who have an encounter with Christ um, either by reading their Bible or if you get into many of our missionaries, in, especially in underdeveloped nations, will report these incredible visions of Christ and of missionaries and different ways God engages them. My, my point isn't that you have to join a church before you become a Christian. My, my point about discipleship is this. You can't commit to following the way of Jesus until you have some idea of what that way looks like. It's, it's like telling someone, hey, listen, we're going to get married today and we don't know each other. That would be crazy, even though that kind of stuff does happen in different parts of the world. We ought to have an idea of what we're getting ourselves into. Today, what I want to talk to you about is the way of mercy. Now, even just using the word mercy elicits, and probably most people here, a different expectation of what this sermon is going to be about. Whether this sermon is just going to be about not holding people accountable, or I need to forgive people who have harmed me, or whatever. As we enter into the story of Jonah, it is important to remember that Scripture is not given to us simply to read and to acknowledge. It is meant to draw us in, and ask. it requires of us to ask hard questions. To ask hard questions of the text, to ask hard questions about our life, to ask hard questions about how we see the world and other people, about humanity and our role in it. And Jonah is a story that is going to invite you in to do a whole lot of self-discovery and discovery about God and discovery about others. And if you make it a story about a fish, you will miss all of that discovery. And if you remember in that ancient Near Eastern world, learning was about discovery not the transfer of information. So if you walk out of here and go, I, know, I now know three other facts about the story of Jonah, I will have utterly failed to present what this book is about. All right, It is not about learning more facts or more interesting stories. This should lead us into a, a place of discovery that affects how we deal with people everywhere we go. Um, all right, So let's just go ahead and begin with Jonah chapter 1. Verse 1, and it says this, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. I'm just going to stop you there, and I'm going to come back to this later, though I don't have near as much time as I would like to have to unpack this. The type of book that this is, is not narrative history. Now, I have plenty of friends who would say to me, if you don't believe the book of Jonah is narrative history, you can't truly love God. Let me prove it to you, all right? Every book of prophecy in the Old Testament begins the exact same way. We go back to Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, well, let's jump to the next book. In Micah, the very first uh, verse in the book of Micah, which is also a book of prophecy, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the Days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. 
Let's go to another book of prophecy that we know, the book of Hosea. Verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Hosea, which we know is a book of prophecy, says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And what makes Jonah different is that the book of Jonah does not follow any other pattern of prophetic literature in the Old Testament. Because every other book of prophecy, if you go, probably your Bible has a place somewhere that divides books by the type of literature they are, and you'll have one that's prophecy, which does not necessarily mean telling the future. Uh, There are prophetic places in Scripture that talk about what is to come, and in Scripture, the test of whether or not you were a good, true prophet was whenever you said something was going to happen in the future, like if it didn't happen... It was bad news for you. And they would literally stone a prophet who foretold something that didn't happen. They would stone them. It was serious business, this foretelling. Not all books of prophecy are about telling about what's coming. The books of prophecy are words from God to a people and usually follow this message of you are messing up big time and if you don't turn, you are going to experience some really harsh consequences. Now, some of those do point to Jesus and to the future. Jonah is one of those. But when we look at a book of prophecy, that does not mean that it follows the pattern of historic literature. However, just so for those who might be tempted to turn me off or or zoom out for the rest of this time because Mark's not positive there was a fish that swallowed Jonah, I have plenty of room in my faith that God can absolutely either manufacture a fish or call a fish that would be able to swallow him and sustain him for three days and spit him out. I just don't think that's what this story is about. And by the way, there's only one fish on the face of the planet that could even possibly do that. Does anybody have any idea what that fish is? A whale, not just any whale. Most whales have a throat the size of a fist. You're not fitting in. In fact, I just, I don't know if it was related or not. You know how algorithms work in search engines and everybody listening to you on social media. But a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I knew I was doing this story on Jonah, and I, so a story comes across my feed of a man who is swallowed by a whale. And I'm like, wow, well, that is really random. Um, and so I read the story, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, I was out here snorkeling, and this whale just all of a sudden clamped around me, and I couldn't move. But he couldn't fit down the throat of the whale, so the whale just kind of let him go, and he swam off. Um, that's most whales. There's only one whale that is even possible of you sliding down into his stomach. And that's a sperm whale, which have been seen in the Mediterranean Sea. Again, not the point. I'm spending way too much time on the fish already. But even then, from end to end, the time of a meal is 18 hours, and we're talking about three days here that he's in there. Now, could it have happened? Yes, God is absolutely big enough to make that. If God can create all of this, he can create a fish that could swallow Jonah and sustain him for three days until Jonah changed his mind. But this literature does not push us in that direction. Literature pushes us in a direction that what the author is trying to do here, which we don't know who it is, he's trying to get us to engage in a story that's going to have to require us to ask hard questions about ourselves. Not about whether or not a fish could swallow a person and for and they could sit in their stomach for three days. That is not the point of the story. Okay? Have I beat a dead horse? Okay. Well, that was rude. That was very rude, but okay. Point taken. 
point taken. Let's go back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, just to give you some background... And what might this story be about? And if it's not historic literature, why do we have um, who Jonah's father is, which seems to be a real person and may be, or why is Nineveh mentioned, which is absolutely a real city um, in existence? And what does all of this have to do with the way of mercy? Just to give you some background, if you'll remember, one of the things we've, we've, um, we've talked about in our study of different kings in the Old Testament, is that some of the people we think were really great kings, we only think that because they follow modern American capitalistic um, ideals. And there is no one that follows those ideals more than King Solomon. And yet, other than David, most people would say the greatest king in the Old Testament was Solomon. But Samuel wouldn't have said that, because when Samuel said, you're going to have an evil king, and he is going to plunge you into all kinds of darkness. He was talking about Solomon. Solomon made all kinds of mistakes, but what he did was expand Israel to a place that they had never seen before. Their economy grew. The number of of large, impressive buildings grew. The temple got really fancy. Initially, their borders began to grow, and then they began to shrink. Because what Solomon also did was tax his people so heavily to pay for all of the expansion and to look like a big world power that he then started selling his own people into slavery or enslaving his own people or giving away the promised land in hopes that they would either gain favor or be able to supplement and financially pay for all the things that they are trying to build in this place. Solomon is not all bad, just like nobody's all bad, but Solomon did some pretty awful things. Now, what ends up happening is that when Solomon dies, his son succeeds him. And when his son succeeds him, he just follows all the policies of dad. And half of the nation of Israel rebels. And what you find if you have studied any about the northern and southern kingdoms, who are familiar with the northern and southern kingdoms? Just raise your hand. What you will find when you begin to study this is that Israel and Judah split. And we're now going to have two sets of kings um, throughout Israel. You can read this in the Old Testament. It's all there. And they, they, re, they uh, Judah recedes from Israel because, hey, you're taxing us. You're selling us into slavery. You're doing all these terrible things. You're, you're marrying these people from Egypt. You're bringing Egypt into Israel. I mean, this is, this is, you know, we're out. We're out. And what often happens in the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament are these nations around them begin to grow and war against them. And one nation in particular was the nation of Assyria, who is eventually going to completely wipe out the northern kingdom, the descendants of Solomon, so that the only Israel left today is the southern kingdom, Judah. Are you following me? All the tribes created Israel. They split, now there's the tribe of Judah, and the rest are in the northern kingdom, Israel. They continue these terrible practices while Judah continues to try to follow God, 
in no small part due to the perspective of whoever is ruling in those nations, and Assyria comes in and wipes out Israel, eventually that land will be restored to Israel, but it will be sometime later when that happens. And do you know what the capital city of Assyria is that has now wiped out the the northern kingdom and has taken half of their land? Guess what that capital is? It is Nineveh. And that's who these people are that are being presented to us that God is saying, I want you to rescue these people. Now let's bring that into our time today. What nation is our greatest enemy? You don't have to say it. <laughs> but you've probably got an answer. And whether it be China or North Korea or Russia or whatever else, It would be like whatever nation is your greatest enemy and God's saying, I want you to go redeem their capital city. Go warn them so that they will be spared and they will be redeemed. This is the setup for this story so that when a reader in this time would read it, they're more likely going to be on Jonah's side when Jonah says, "Uh, no, I will not give them a message of redemption. They should just die. I mean, this is what the storyteller is trying to get us to feel. We don't feel it because Nineveh is just another city that we don't have any idea what it's about. But for them, these were their greatest enemies. As we introduce Jonah in this way, mercy, if you want to look it up, which is a pretty accurate definition, and any any dictionary that you'll find is simply this. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who it's within their power to punish or harm. That is what mercy is. Someone who gives compassion or forgives when it's in their power to punish, even rightly deserved. That is what mercy is. So when we come to this part of the story, I'm going to ask you a a few questions over the next few minutes. One is this. At this point, what you know from these verses, who is in need of mercy in this story? Say it out. Nineveh? Yes. Nineveh is absolutely in need of mercy. Now what we see is that Jonah is going to be another character that is in great need of mercy, are we not? In fact, instead of going, he goes to a place called Tarshish, which could be translated paradise. Or, in other words, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I don't want to go to the, the, the capital of my enemies, and I surely don't want to declare a nation uh, or a message of redemption. I'm going to go over here because this is good times for me, because what's most important is that I feel good about my life and what I'm doing at the moment. So that's where he goes. It's not just this place that he goes. He goes in the exact opposite uh, geographic direction, Opposite heart direction, I'm going to wherever I am celebrated, not where they are offered redemption, because they are do what they have done. Next part of the story, which we're not going to read, he gets in a boat. Siri disagrees with me, by the way. Happens often. They get in a boat, and he's headed to Tarshish, and there's this great storm, and in this great storm, Um, Jonah is found sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Which, by the way, does that story sound familiar to any other stories in the Bible? It sounds really familiar. In the story in the New Testament where Jesus is in the bottom of the boat and the storm's happening, 
they have to come wake him up too. Except when he wakes up, he calms the storm. When Jonah wakes up, he's like, I don't know. And this group of sailors that have him in their boat apparently are worshiping God at this point. Which is kind of weird because just shortly after, now they're casting lots. They're gambling to figure out, well, who's the one guilty of this and we need to throw them over the side. And eventually they would say, Jonah would say, well, it's me. I'm the problem. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, and this is really interesting. Have you ever wondered why they ask these questions? Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? What's your nationality? What's your ethnicity? Where do you come from? What do you do? Now, those aren't really the questions that would be on my mind if I'm in a boat and I'm afraid it's about to go down and I'm trying to implore God to save us. I'm probably not going to look to somebody and say, so what, what exactly do you do? Where exactly are you from? I mean, in my mind, I'm going to be thinking, where, okay, where are the life wraps? Can we uh, you know, get somebody up on the radio? Which, of course, they couldn't. They didn't have radio. But what do we got to do to survive this thing? This is not a normal thing that someone would ask in the middle of a crisis. Because this part of the story is supposed to teach us something. It's supposed to require us to ask questions. And for us today, when we, we rest solely in the grace of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we don't think about faith in terms of our nationalities. But they absolutely did because there was only one nation that God was for. And that was the nation of Israel. Certainly not the Assyrians. I mean, they're evil. Where are you from? God must be punishing you. If you'll remember from our story of Genesis, God has chosen these people through the lineage of Abraham that would become the nation of Israel. Chose these people to demonstrate to the world His love. And he was worthy to be praised. He was the King of kings. He was the Lord of lords. He was the God of gods. He is the one. And He's going to show through Israel that everyone else that you're worshiping is not worthy. Just Yahweh. So already we have right in the beginning of the story that this is about nationalities. Where are you from? Why is God trying to punish where you're from? What kind of person are you? Story goes on, verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, like, well then who is it? <laughs> What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So eventually this story will continue on and the crew's going to struggle and they're eventually going to decide we need to give this over to God. And so they were already throwing everything out of the boat and they threw him out of the boat too, which should appease him. And everything calms and everything is okay because Jonah's now out of the boat. They struggle. They're not sure they want to do this, but they finally do. We pick up in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land where bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. Verse 7, he sa- and in chapter 2 he says, When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. There's a moment of what appears to be repentance. And he has no choice. The only other option is to be digested, I guess, at this point. But he chooses the path of repentance and after the path, this path of seeming repentance, and I say seeming because it's really confusing where his heart is as the story continues. Then he's rescued. Now let me ask you this, at this point of the story, who is in need of mercy? Jonah? Who else is in need of mercy? Nineveh? They're still both in need of mercy, right? So this story is still not about a fish. I mean, there's like three references to a fish in those short few verses and four chapters of this book. The story is not about a fish. The story is about mercy. Mercy needed. Mercy offered. Mercy accepted? I don't know. We're not to that part of the story yet. Let's jump down to chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Exact same message. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Lots of threes in this story. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So who's in need of mercy? We all are. It's the easy answer, isn't it? I think one of the challenges for for us to talk about mercy in the church today is that we, we are pressured by culture to say that mercy means we just never hold anyone accountable. Mercy is just giving everyone a free pass. We never stand up for ourselves or anyone else. We never say no. Mercy. We give in. That is not the story that we see here. We interestingly see two parts of mercy here. We see a God who is looking at a nation who at this point has created so many atrocious acts, which we read over and over again. The atrocious acts of those in Scripture are typically this. You don't care for the needs of the poor. You don't care for the needs of the oppressed. You don't look after the the least of these. You care only about yourselves. You don't care about anybody else. Most every single time you find God bringing punishment on a nation, it is how they are treating other people or not caring for the people who are in need. So, There is absolutely a message of mercy, of deserved punishment that is withheld. But we also... Be quiet, Siri. Big grief. I'm going to turn my watch off. 
But we also have this incredible introduction of a concept of merciful intervention. So there's intervention into the nation of Israel, I mean into the nation of Assyria through Jonah. Like I'm I'm going to destroy you if you don't turn. But I'm going to send Jonah to give you the message that if you turn, I will give you mercy and withhold the punishment that you deserve. But he intervenes in this place. We also have the story of Jonah who is in need of mercy because he's running the other way. Now there is a, there is a midrash which I, some of you, I, we've used that term so many times. Some of you have said, I still don't know what a midrash is. It is, it is literally tradition that has been passed down from rabbi to rabbi. Some of it is more trustworthy than others, but eventually got written down in some ways as a commentary for the Scriptures, but itself is not Scriptures, but would have been known by the people of that time. They would have known the midrash. And there's a midrash that says that Jonah was actually a young boy that was revived by Elijah. There's a story of Elijah bringing a young boy to life and that that boy is actually Jonah. And then that's the one that God is going to call to deliver the message to Assyria. But he runs. Now he's in need of mercy because he's running from God. And now we have intervention for him in the form of this minor character, the fish. Which leads us to the place when we look at our lives and we ask, why is God letting this happen in my life? That He may just be saying, I am mercifully intervening because you were headed in the wrong direction. Mercy is not simply, yeah, I know that was a really bad thing you did, but I'm just, I'm just going to ignore it. It is not what mercy is. Merciful intervention is a place in which God intervenes into our lives or at times calls us to intervene in the lives of others when they are at a point that they are headed in the wrong direction and there is something really awful in that direction if someone doesn't intervene. As parents, merciful intervention, parenting. In the church, we would often call it discipleship. There's an intervention within our lives. There is a need for the Gospel to go out to people. Someone needs to go out. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That instruct and let people know there's an opportunity for mercy if you choose it. We read this story, who is in need of mercy? Well, they're both in need of mercy. The Lord came to Jonah the second time and He said this, and the people... They listened. And they repented. And they tore their clothes in a, in a sign of grieving over the sin in their community, which was multifaceted. And they were offered mercy. We jump down to verse 10. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented to the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. At this point, Jonah gets angry. Like, I gave the message, but you were still supposed to destroy them because you know know they just took half our nation, right? You know they just wiped out the northern kingdom, right? He gets angry. and But God said to Jonah in chapter 4, verse 9, see how fast we got to chapter 4? I want somebody to tell Scott how fast we got to chapter 4, by the way. He's not here today, but next week, tell him. Mark got to chapter 4 really, really fast. I would appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Just another 45 minutes and we'll be done. 
But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? This is God makes a plant grow, and then He takes the plant away. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Which I just see myself way too much in this statement. Do you just like, something uncomfortable happens, but your response to it is, I might as well just die. You know, you know somebody like that. And some of you, it's the person in the mirror. I just might as well just die. You know, they're, they're out of pumpkin spice at Starbucks. Well, I might as well just die. You know, I, it's crazy what people will die over today. It's, you know, but that's kind of what he's doing. I had shade, now I've lost shade. I might as well just die. I mean, he's such a diva at this point. But and the Lord said, you pity the plant which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. In other words, they don't even know the story that you know. They don't know that my whole point from the very beginning, from all of your Scriptures, is that I'm trying to redeem the world. They don't know what I've done through you. And I still want to offer them mercy. Yet you know and you are throwing a a temper tantrum over a plant. Not caring that 120,000 people and everything they had would would have ceased to exist. You don't care about any of that. So we come to this part of the story. And who at this part of the story is in need of mercy? It's Jonah. The city already has it. God is capable, has passed judgment, and He has withheld punishment. And that is mercy. And He gave a plant to Jonah, and He made it wither to point out the darkness in Jonah's heart, and that is also mercy. There are times that God needs to intervene in our lives mercifully that feels like punishment. And there are times that we struggle with grace and accountability so that we still think when something bad happens, it's my fault and God doesn't love me. Or on the other side, I've done enough good things, God should not let this kind of thing happen to me. We so interchangeably go back to to salvation by works. It is so hard not to go back to that place. And then when we become blind to our own sin, we look at others and we say, you, you deserve punishment because you haven't done good enough. You don't deserve mercy. And in this already, there is so much to cause us to have to struggle with this story that has nothing to do with the fish. How do we deal with this story? Who is in need of mercy? Nineveh is absolutely in need of mercy. They heard the message. They repented. Jonah's been in need of mercy at least three times. When he fled, and there was a merciful intervention of a fish. When he repented, and God let him out and sent him on a mission, and he went and did the mission, and he got angry that God didn't destroy them, and he got angry over the plant, and yet God is still offering Redemption and mercy to Him. See, if we just say this is a story to prove that God is big enough to have a fish that could swallow a man and last for three days and then spit him out on the land, 
that really doesn't take a whole lot of faith. And it doesn't require me to look in the mirror and go, what's going on in my heart as it relates to how I either offer or withhold mercy from others? The story is so much deeper than this. It has to do with how you see the people you do life with, how you walk through a checkout line or um, how slow the food is at the table or when your neighbor wrongs you because they do something on your property or something or someone criticizes you and tells you you're a terrible whatever. When I read this story, my tendency is to be Jonah running to Tarshish. I want to run comfort and rest and paradise. I don't want to run to the place that it's going to cost me something. And yet following Jesus is always going to cost us something. We have so manufactured a gospel that costs us nothing. Saved by grace through faith. I don't know. Yet the Scriptures do not actually teach that. Sure, saved by grace through faith. There's plenty of work for us to do. When we read this story and we let this story mess with us, begins to teach us some deep lessons about humanity and about people. And in this way, asking about his nation and his occupation, how do we look at people who are different from us, whether it be their nationality or their ethnicity or their religious background or their economic background or whatever? How do we look at people who are different from us? Who maybe are, in our minds, less deserving of the mercy we ourselves worship with and sing songs with? What does this story teach us? Mercy, I've got a slide for this. Just I'm back on my slides again, by the way. Mercy presupposes that someone has the power to judge and either punish or redeem. God in this instance ha- is worthy to judge and has the power to punish or to redeem. Mercy presupposes that there is a person who has that power and there is someone who has messed up something and they are in deserving of punishment. And the person with the power, is the one that offers mercy. The person who is deserving of the punishment has no say in the matter. They can apologize or say they're sorry or repent or you should have mercy, but they have no power in actually granting that mercy. This whole concept means there is someone with the power to punish who rightfully can judge in that and they willfully choose to withhold punishment for some reason. And if you look at this story and you let it wash over you, and you don't get stuck on a fish, then you're going to realize that you and I are in both places every day. We are in need of mercy, and we're in a position of offering mercy every single day. Are we Nineveh or are we Jonah? (laughs) We are both. Now, we want to be God. I'm the one who gets to decide what's been right or wrong, and I'm the one who wants to punish or to offer mercy. We don't want to be Jonah in the midst of needing mercy or Nineveh in the midst of needing mercy. You and I are in both places every day. How do you wield that power? How do you wield that power in an argument at home? How do you wield that power... When you go to work and somebody drops the ball, how do you wield that power as you parent your children? 
How do you wield that power when you go out to your mailbox and your neighbor's doing that same stupid thing? How do you wield that power? How do you wield that power when your food is slow in the restaurant or the cashiers are behind at the grocery store or the line to the self-checkout is through the back of the store or whatever? How do you wield the power that you have to judge and to offer punishment or redemption? His story is not about a fish. Or is about the power to forgive. The necessity of forgiveness. And the free offering of it. That's what this story is about. You know, it's pretty interesting three days. I did look it up, by the way. How long does it take for a sperm whale to eat something and then for it to you know, exit the system? It's 18 hours on average. You know, Maybe you've gotten a lot of fiber. Maybe it'd be a little quicker than that. I don't know. It's 18 hours. That is not the point of the story. Where do you have that power? Let me ask a few questions. Just take a moment to pause. And I don't want anybody to say anything out loud. And I don't want you to answer for anyone else, just for yourself, in your own mind, and in your own prayer to God. Number one, When am I like Nineveh? Deserving punishment. When am I Nineveh? I've rejected God. At times warred against Him. Told Him He doesn't matter and I don't care what He wants to do in this world. I know what I want to do in this world. Every single day we are Nineveh. Every single day we are Nineveh. Every single day, God is offering us mercy. We are in, we deserve punishment. He has the right to judge us. He has the power to punish us. And He has chosen to withhold it. When am I like Nineveh and I deserve punishment? Second question. When am I Jonah? Not wanting to give mercy. They deserve it. You don't understand what they've done. They're terrible people. I mean, everybody wants them to pay. We look at the story, you know, almost 3,000 years removed, and are like, Jonah, don't you get any of this? And yet if I let this story wash over me and I look for myself in this story and I take this story for what it's meant to do, require me to address my own bigotries, address my own lack of willingness to forgive. I don't address my own need for forgiveness. I'll go, that's pretty interesting. Story about a fish. Man, that Jonah guy, he sure was lucky. And I can avoid all of this self-examination. I can do that with literally any verse in the Bible. And amazingly, Jesus was dead three days. And he rose again. It's pointing to mercy that's going to be offered not just to the, to the Jews, but to all people. Just as Jonah goes to a non-Jewish nation, which would have been unheard of. 
Because Yahweh, we all know Yahweh works through Israel, not through Assyria. And yet, Jesus would come and say, this is for every nation. We're trying to redeem every nation, which is what God said from the very beginning. We just didn't want to listen to it. Those people are bad. They're trying to take our nation. They're trying to take our land. They're trying to do all these terrible things to us. When am I Jonah not wanting to give mercy? And and I want to be careful with this third question, but I do think it needs to be told because this is a third very important presence and character in this story. When am I God in a position to give mercy? I don't mean we're God or I'm God or we're going to, you know, but in this story, when am I the one that is in a position of power to give mercy to someone who has offended? Is there someone in your life right now that needs that? I'm withholding. I'm, no, I'm being Jonah in this moment. Every one of us can be in all three of these positions. Simultaneously. I find I'm much more willing to give mercy when I am most aware of my own need for mercy. Like, I I don't really want to hold this against you because I'm really, really hoping that my stuff's not going to be held against me. When we are blind to our own need for mercy, we are less likely to offer mercy to anyone. We feel self-justified. We feel like we're better than they are. We feel like God loves us more and God's on our side. Yeah, the most dangerous position a person can put themselves in a conversation is saying God's on my side. Like, just... Most people who do that don't end up in a good spot. Like God's like, I'm on all your side. Now, I do think it makes sense to think about this more practically and also to contrast it with the modern trend towards believing that parenting or um, when bad things are happening in the world should just be met by Christians with a blind eye or we just forgive without any repentance whatsoever. Um, If you try to raise your children uh, without um, punishment or discipline, uh, then you're going to have holy terrors, right? We live in a world where we just let everybody do whatever they want. The world will burn itself to the ground. But there is a difference in the way Scripture talks about this. There is a difference between punishment and discipline. There is a difference in a process to lead to just hurt and restoration. There is a difference in these things. The Bible doesn't move us to punish. The Bible moves us to disciple or to discipline to teach, to show a better way. So mercy, you can offer mercy and the escape of punishment while at the same time offering to disciple through discipline. The idea that we should just turn a blind eye is just not the way God has operated in anywhere in the the Bible. There are all kinds of ways that we, we don't practice mercy. If you constantly tell people all of their faults, you are withholding 
mercy. If you're constantly bringing up old wounds, you are withholding mercy. If a person has repented and they have confessed and they have asked forgiveness and yet we never offer it, we are withholding the very mercy that God Himself offers and we are in the place of Jonah. We do this in a number of ways. I used to... My my default um, humor is sarcasm. Everybody else has that. Like it's a it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a horrible thing. We can really harm a lot of people with sarcasm. And Deidre's default response to sarcasm is, "I'm gonna kill you." Like that's her default response to sarcasm. Like she's not there's not a sarcastic bone in her body. We have a tendency at times to use levity to tear people down, to remind people that they're not good enough, to let them know that they've screwed up, and that is the withholding of mercy, just as it was Jonah refusing to go tell the message to Nineveh. It's withholding mercy. The difference between... Well, before I say that, Well, the difference between punishment versus discipline. Mercy does not make us immune to consequences. There are still consequences to our acts, even if we're offered mercy. Punishment seeks to harm you. Discipline seeks to grow you. The difference. Both will involve some level of discomfort but only one of the two will actually lead to growth and redemption. Discipline will lead to growth and redemption. Punishment just leads to pain. And also, mercy can be the withholding of punishment and the presence of intervention or discipline because we see mercy in both ways. God mercifully intervenes and God offers mercy. The reality of this relationship of discipling or holding accountable, I think it is important for us as the church to remember because there have been times we have felt it was our job to hold everybody accountable even if they don't profess to believe in Christ. You cannot be in a position to discipline if you are not in a relationship that is open to that. Now, there are some relationships that presuppose you're open to it, like parent-child. Like The child may not have chosen that, but guess what? This is how you came into the world. This is a relationship you got. Marriage is another one. But other institutions, like you're a member of an HOA, so the HOA gets to say, cut your grass. They get to say that. You pay fees for them to tell you that, which you hate, Really, make, you know, then you don't want to live in a neighborhood with an HOA. But if you move into a community that has an HOA, you're submitting to the discipline of the HOA. When we send our kids to school, they should be submitting to the discipline of the teachers, even though there are TikToks of random terrible teachers out there. Most teachers are really great teachers partnering with us for our kids. And if we allow our kids to go in and be holy terrors in the classroom... Well, we're not actually teaching them anything good about life. But when you go to school, you submit 
to the discipline of the teachers. When we enter into the church, there's a process where we hold each other accountable. But we willingly do that. But we don't go down the street letting people know that we're judging them. That we have the power. We don't do that, but the church has done that. It can be the withholding of punishment and the presence of intervention and discipline, but we have to have a relationship that is open to that type of relationship. Ultimately, the Gospel, which much of the story of Jonah is, remember, a book of prophecy, telling us a story about mercy and redemption, but also pointing to a greater redemption that's coming through Christ. This is a story that's telling us a bit about Jesus who is coming. Thankfully, he doesn't take the same route that Jonah takes. Willingly gives up his life for the redemption of the world. The Gospel says, if you choose this way, I will redeem you. I will discipline you, but I will not punish you. If you choose a different way, there is hardship and punishment down the other way. Both now in the way that you live because you miss all the benefits of living the way God says is good, and for all eternity. This is what I would leave you with. We cannot claim mercy if we are not willing to be merciful, even to our enemies, even to the worst of our enemies. Jesus would make this very clear. Love your enemies and pray for them. And if they strike you on one cheek, turn the other to them. I mean, those are very uncomfortable words when you have someone in front of you striking you. Those are very uncomfortable words. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see why this is so much bigger than a fish? So much harder of a story to read and to go through? I, I literally debated killing this message and just doing a whole series on Jonah. But I decided I got against it. Where are you in this parable, in this story? Are you stuck on the fact that I just said this may be a parable? Okay, it may be real. It could be historical narrative literature. It doesn't point to that, but it could be. And I have no problem believing God could do everything in here just like it happened. But I also don't have a problem believing that Nineveh was used because for the listeners, there was no greater enemy on the face of the planet that they also would want to be destroyed than Nineveh. It struck right to their heart of a lack of offering mercy to others. Because this was the nation they hated more than any other. Where do you see this in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? Who do you need to offer mercy to? Who do you need to finally stop holding a fence over their head? Or when do we need to stop getting offended at everything? Mercy can be the withholding of offense. I'm just choosing not to be offended even though I feel absolutely justified in it. I'm just going to choose not to be offended. Mercy is the way. It is the way of Jesus. It is the way of God. And when we come to these stories, who is more devoted to the Scriptures? The one who knows the story about the fish or the one that finds what God's trying to say to them in that story? I think it's the one who's trying to find what God's trying to say to them in that story. All right?
went a little over. I'm going to ask for your mercy. Too soon, wasn't it? Thanks. Let me pray with you. For those in this room, there are there are some people, their personalities um, are bent not to ever think about the need to give mercy to others. Instead, sometimes our minds are so messed up that we just think we ourselves are constantly deserving of punishment. I know a lot of people that live their whole life not worried about punishing others, just believing there's nothing good in them. And I just... That is not the message of the Bible. (laughs) You are made in the image of God, made of value and worth. Someone worthy for the Son of God to come and give His life for you. To redeem you and to say you matter and it doesn't matter what nation you came from, what ethnicity you were, what economic status. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished or not accomplished in this world. You are a person of value. So some of you need to walk out of here and you're not... Offering mercy to others has never been a problem for you because you are constantly thinking about all the ways you've messed up. Can I just say, receive the mercy of God today and lay that down and walk fully forward knowing you are forgiven and loved and valued. And God is not going to hold your punishment over you for you to die. You are Nineveh. Fully receiving His mercy. But for those of us, we need to offer mercy. We're offended quickly, and we let other people know how they disappoint us quickly. We hold faults, and we find the fault, and we push the button to make sure everybody else sees the fault. Let it go. Offer mercy. Follow the way of Jesus. Father.